0: 1st Timothy 6 we begin in verse 13 this is the word of god let us hear it I give thee charge in the sight of god who quickeneth all things and before christ jesus who before pontius pilate witnessed the good confession that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable until the appearing of our lord jesus christ which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Amen. And we'll end our reading at the end of the chapter and at the end of the letter. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. If I could call your attention in Particular to verses 13 and 14 here. I'll refer to some of the others as well, but we'll call this my text this morning where Paul says to Timothy, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen throughout our studies of 1 Timothy that this entire letter constitutes a charge. A charge that Paul communicates to Timothy. A charge that Paul not only communicates to Timothy, but that Timothy himself is called on to communicate to others. So, back in chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul writes, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And you remember, this is some while back, but I've been stressing this all along the importance that Paul places on doctrine. Timothy, I am charging you to charge those that are at Ephesus who have the responsibility for preaching, for teaching. Make sure they don't teach any other doctrine. Make sure they don't stray from the glorious truths of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. And then coming forward into chapter 5, verse 21, note the word again, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. And now we come to our text near the end of the epistle, and Paul is pressing his charge on Timothy yet again. Verse 13, chapter 6, I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession and before we reach the end of the chapter and the end of the epistle, we discover one last group of people to whom Timothy is to communicate this charge. Chapter 6, verse 17 Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us all things richly to enjoy. We've seen in our studies then something of the substance of this charge that pertains to doctrine and to conduct or practice. Perhaps this is best summarized by the statement in chapter 4 and verse 16, where Paul writes, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Do you see from this charge how doctrine and practice, or practical living, if you will, come together in that statement? Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Two things then that he's to take heed to, his conduct and his doctrine his practice, and his beliefs. Sound doctrine, you see, should always lead to sound living. And where sound doctrine does not lead to sound living. And unfortunately, in our day, that seems to be a phenomenon that's increasingly common where sound doctrine does not lead to sound living, I think the reason can be traced to a lack of true and experiential knowledge of God. You can know theology, you know, without knowing God. You can be very orthodox even in your theology and still not know God. And when you find Unsound living, hypocritical living, if you will, sinful living that is lived out among those that can uh, very eloquently express themselves in sound doctrine, well, the problem is traceable to an experiential knowledge of God. Could it be for that very reason that now near the end of this first epistle to Timothy we come to what I believe is one of the most profound and comprehensive and deep yet plain and clear statements made by Paul that pertains to God and that particularly pertains to Christ? Verses 13 through 16 of First Timothy 6. I believe contain the bedrock of theology that governed Paul's life and that governed Paul's teaching. Look at these verses again with me and note especially the connection between the charge and the doctrine. He begins in verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things, It's God, you see, who quickens all things. Or in other words, it's God who gives life to all things, to all the creatures of the animal kingdom, to all the plants and vegetation that grows on the earth. It's God who gives life to the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And it was God that breathed into the body of Adam to make man a living soul. God who quickeneth all things. I like the words of one commentator who remarked on this verse, who quickeneth all things, who gives life to all. It is not quite clear why the apostle refers to this attribute of God as enforcing the charge which he here makes. Perhaps he means to say, and let me pause here to say, uh, it is at this point where I find myself differing from this commentator. I don't think there's any perhaps about it. But I'm quoting the commentator now. Perhaps he means to say that God is the source of life, and that as he had given life to Timothy, natural and spiritual, he had a right to require that it should be employed in his service, that if in obedience to this charge and in the performance of his duties, he should be required to lay down his life, he should bear in remembrance that God had the power to raise him up again. God who quickeneth. Boy, there's a lot even to that little phrase, isn't there? God, uh, and, and I know I have pointed this out on various occasions, in the authorized version, that word quicken means uh, to revive, to make alive. Okay? The source of that is God. But then the, the, the focus shifts to Christ. I charge thee in the sight of God who quickeneth all things. And before Jesus Christ, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. That same commentator then says, The reference is to the fact that the Lord Jesus, when standing at the bar of Pilate, who claimed to have power over his life, did not shrink from an open avowal of the truth. And you can read of that in John 18, verses 36 and 37. Nothing can be better fitted to preserve our minds steadfast in the faith and to enable us to maintain our sacred vows in this world when allured by temptation or when ridiculed for our religion than to remember the example of the Lord Jesus Let us place him before us as he stood at the bar of Pilate, threatened with death in its most appalling form, and ridiculed for the principles which he maintained. Let us look on him, friendless and alone, and see with what seriousness and sincerity and boldness he stated the simple truth about himself, And we shall have one of the best securities that we can have that we shall not dishonor our profession. A clear view of the example of Christ our Savior in those circumstances and a deep conviction that his eye is upon us to discern whether we are steadfast as he was will do more than all abstract precepts to make us faithful in our Christian calling. And then when we come to verses 14 through 16, the focus is entirely on Christ, and it's in these verses that Paul makes some very profound statements about Christ. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. You know, that's a portion you ought to read, and uh, it ought to take your breath away. It is that profound, it is that deep, it is uh, uh, so beyond us and so glorious, the statements that are made here about Christ. What I'd like to do in the moments that remain this morning is to look at these statements that pertain to Christ, and I want to look at them and draw from them the same thing that the Apostle Paul draws from them, Paul's use of these theological statements, you see, is that Timothy, and that you and I, in turn, find in these statements the motivation we need to take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine that we learn from God's Word. I think these verses provide for us a clear instance of how Theology lights the fire in our hearts. So let's look at the statements in that light as we consider the motives for keeping the charge in our lives to live holy lives. The motives for keeping our charge to live lives that are holy. And consider with me, first of all, the motive that Christ is going to appear again. Christ is going to appear again. Verses 13 and 14 again. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, and then underscore it here, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 13 and 14. This reference to the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ shows us the duration of the charge. This is what makes the charge applicable not only to Timothy, but to every Christian since the time of Timothy until the Lord comes again. And we do well to affirm this morning that Christ is coming again. And when that time comes, Paul tells us that a number of things will become very plain and clear so as to be beyond all doubt. Notice what Paul goes on to say with reference to this coming appearance of Christ. Verse 15, which in his times he shall show who is that blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is that blessed potentate. Now the word potentate is a term used for one who has great authority and power. The word appears only three times in the New Testament. In the Virgin Mary's prayer, found in Luke in Luke 1 and verse 52, Mary says, With regard to God, he hath put down the mighty. Underscore that word mighty. Same word as our word potentate. He has put down the mighty, or the potentates, from their seats and exalted them of low degree. And then in Acts chapter 8 and verse 27, with regard to Philip, in the context of Philip, we read, And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, underscore that phrase, great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. So when we look at the uses of the term then, we may say that a potentate is one who is mighty and he's one who possesses great authority. Now take note, okay, this is important. Take note that in our text, in 1 Timothy 6.15, there is one of two statements that show us the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. By exclusivity, I mean He's exclusive. There's none like Him. And that is conveyed to us by a very simple word. Note what it says. Which in His times He shall show who is the blessed and only, only potentate. He's the only one. There's none greater. There are none with greater authority than Christ. Christ. And this is why Paul could go on to write and make it a point of emphasis that this blessed and only potentate is king of kings and lord of lords. He has won the right, you see, to be the one and only potentate under God his father. Following his atoning death and resurrection, he was authorized to say to his disciples, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This is why we have the right and the responsibility to give out the gospel. And when we run into circumstances in which sinful men would attempt to prohibit us from giving out the gospel, we do well to call to mind that the highest of all authority, that blessed and only potentate, that one who is king of kings and lord of lords, has said we should give out the gospel. There's no higher court of appeal than that, folks, but there certainly are a lot of lesser courts that would try to restrict us from this commission. Now we know, don't we, that in our time, such a claim pertaining to Christ, being that only potentate, king of kings, lord of lords, is disputed. There are numerous counterfeits inspired of the devil that would take such a claim to being the one and only potentate to themselves. When Christ's time comes, however, and he appears, our text tells us, he will show who the real ruler of the universe is. And that word show means literally he will expose to the eyes or he will give evidence or proof of a thing. He's going to prove who's in charge when he returns. And when he proves who rules and who doesn't by summoning the living and the dead to his judgment bar, we know that at that time, and Paul makes this clear in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wonder this morning, have you made such a confession yourself? Have you bowed in your heart before the Lord Jesus Christ to acknowledge that He is God come in the flesh, that He is King of kings and Lord of lords? You have the wonderful opportunity while things are in the state they are now to make that confession to the salvation of your soul. But if you fail to make that confession confession to the saving of your soul you should know that you are going to make that confession nevertheless when Christ appears in his glory but then it will not be to your salvation it will be to your condemnation and the Lord Jesus will be glorified in that day What motivation we have, therefore, to keep the charge of taking heed to ourselves and to the doctrine of Christ. Peter, in his second epistle, communicates the same truth very forcefully when he writes in 2 Peter, beginning in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? "...looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat." Do you see how in that passage, Peter is plainly taking the glorious truth, an awesome truth of Christ's return, and a new heaven and a new earth, and he is making this a source of motivation." What manner of men, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be? This truth of Christ's return, this truth of the earth giving way to a new and better heaven and earth, should motivate us to all manner of godliness and holiness. Let this be your motivation then for holy living, Christ will come again, and when he comes, he'll prove himself. Now, before leaving this point, let me at least mention the other word that pertains to Christ as that potentate. Not only is he the only potentate, but take note that he is the blessed and only potentate, verse 15. One commentator noted that the phrase phrase means he is the happy ruler. The term blessed conveying that very meaning. He is the happy ruler. He is blessed of his Father. To call him blessed is to say really that he is in the realm of favor with his Father. He is blessed that way. And we are blessed in him. The favor of God is bestowed upon us when we are joined to him. So when we look ahead to that fearful day, oh, there is much in it that can and should make us tremble, but there is also much in it that should make us rejoice. Christ is that blessed potentate, and we are blessed in him. So that's the first motive for keeping the charge that comes from Paul to Timothy to us, Christ is returning. Of course, he rules and reigns right now. The next motive for keeping the charge is that Christ is the only source of immortality. Look with me at verse 16 and note here again that word only. That word may seem to be insignificant, but in fact that Simple word only places strong emphasis on the exclusivity of Christ. Not only is he the only potentate, king of kings and lord of lords, verse 15, but now we note that he only hath immortality, dwelling in the light. Now, immortality is a term of life, not only everlasting life, but a term of the purity of life. And this becomes clear when you see how the term is contrasted in 1 Corinthians 15 to the word corruption. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53 and 54, and note the contrast in these words. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, nothing is as corruptible as death, is there? The stench of death is unbearable. The decaying process of death is Frightening and grotesque. But in contrast to that which is corruptible and mortal, we find Christ who is altogether pure and lovely. And the contrast couldn't be greater as we go on to read of Christ who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. Can you see the contrast now between that which is mortal and corruptible and that which is pure and holy? I'm reminded of one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. It's found in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18. It's in that narrative where Moses is begging the Lord not to forsake the people. They had fallen so quickly into idolatry the Lord was about to destroy them and start over. Moses pleads for them. He obtains forgiveness for them. And then he continues to plead, and the Lord agrees to go with them into the land. This is an instance, and I pointed this out on numerous occasions, where you find a striking example of the kind of spiritual ambition that we all should manifest when Moses, after having gained so much from God already, goes on in verse 18 of Exodus 13 to pray, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Moses, who had gained so much by God's grace, wanted even more. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And in his answer to Moses, God points out, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Oh, the Lord would condescend to make all his goodness pass before Moses, and he would agree to proclaim the name of the Lord before Moses, but Moses would not see his face, for no man can behold God in his glory that way. Not even the angels of heaven in their sinless perfection can behold the face of God. They must cover their eyes, and we have the account of that in Isaiah 6, where with two wings they cover their feet, with two wings they fly, with two wings they cover their eyes, as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, it's interesting that a careful comparison of that passage in Isaiah with John's Gospel chapter 12 will show you that Isaiah speaks of Christ when he speaks of the Lord of hosts in his glory. And when you read the accounts in the Gospels of Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration, you discover that the authors of those Gospels are at a loss to describe the countenance of Christ, so brightly does he shine with majestic splendor. So in Matthew 17, in verse 2, Matthew writes... His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Mark words it this way in chapter 9 and verse 3, And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Luke records it this way in Luke chapter 9 and verse 29, And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. I get the impression that the disciples, that the authors of the Gospels are struggling for words to even attempt to describe the kind of glory that they were beholding in the Mount of Transfiguration. His face did shine as the sun, raiment white as light, raiment becoming shining, exceedingly white as snow. The fashion of his countenance altered as raiment white and glistering. And I find it interesting that of all the authors of the gospel, only John was actually there at the time that Christ was transfigured. The other authors are reporting secondhand what happened in the mount. That doesn't lessen the truth of what they're saying, but they weren't there. They're uh, recording the result, I suppose, of interviews of the apostles that were there. And John doesn't include the account of the transfiguration in his gospel. And I can't help but wonder, you suppose the reason that John does not record it Is because John knew that what he saw in the mount defied description. This is beyond what words can convey. Beholding the glory of Christ. The Mount of Transfiguration was not the only time John beheld Christ in his glory. On the Isle of Patmos, where John had been exiled... Christ appeared to him there, and after John turned toward the voice which he first heard, we have the account of his sight of Christ and the effect that that blinding glory of Christ had on him. So we read in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That revelation was so blinding that John couldn't endure it. He falls on his face before Christ. And you know, that's a rather consistent pattern that you have throughout the Bible. You look at those instances where God draws near in that fashion, and the impact is always the same. We have a little bit of an instance of that in the Apostle Peter. I think we considered that recently, and all it took was a miracle from Christ, the miracle of the catching of many fish, For Peter to say, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Where the Lord appears in blinding glory, that will always be the impact. And by the way, uh, we, we were on the topic in Sunday school this morning of false prophets. One of the surest indication of a false prophet, especially coming from a man who claims to have seen God, is the way he can so casually make reference to such an event. Oh man, if you saw him, you'd be on your face. If you saw him, you'd fall at his feet like a dead man. You wouldn't be presenting it so casually as you're attempting to do now to convince us of something that just isn't so. Paul himself certainly knew what it meant to see in some measure Christ in his glory. And the effect upon him was to blind him for some three days, until a man sent from Christ touched his eyes and healed him. Some have speculated that Paul never did completely recover from the sight of that blinding glory of Christ on the Damascus Road. Now the point to all this is that the eternality of Christ or the immortality of Christ and the pure and spotless holiness of Christ should motivate us to keep the charge that we be holy as God himself is holy. So Peter, writing and drawing from the Old Testament for this, in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16 But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, holiness speaks to us of separateness, and it also speaks to us of moral purity. I very often, however, find myself compelled to point out that holiness also speaks to us of the joy of salvation. And again, I think you could make the application here, just as Christ is that blessed and only potentate, that happy ruler, if you will, it's also true that when it comes to his holiness, he is blessed and happy or joyful as he dwells in unapproachable light. It's important to know this because I'm afraid there are some that mistakenly align holiness with sadness and misery. How often have you heard the Puritans caricatured this way? The thing that they feared most was something that might make them smile or laugh. Oh, such a breach of holiness to smile or laugh. In order to be holy, the reasoning goes, you must deny yourself of anything in this world that might bring you pleasure. We do well to note, therefore, that when Paul has Timothy communicate his charge to those that are rich, in the very next verse, verse 17, he says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high minded, nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. See, there is no uh, disconnect between holiness and joy. In fact, you show me a man who who is just practicing self-denial to such an extent that he's like a man in a monastery, Um, I'll show you a man who is anything but holy. Now, there is a connection between holiness and the joy of, of salvation. Holiness then is not marked simply as a Christian who has nothing. It's marked rather by a Christian who doesn't trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. And in his walk with Christ, he learns how to glorify and enjoy God and to enjoy the right use of the blessings of God, who does indeed give us richly all things to enjoy. So we have these two motives then for keeping the charge to take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine. There's the motive of Christ's return. There's the motive of Christ's attributes of being immortal and holy. Let me touch on one more motive briefly in closing, which is the motive that Christ is worthy of all honor and praise. Christ is worthy of all honor and praise. Verse 16 closes with a benediction of sorts as Paul speaks concerning Christ, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. To whom, to him, to Christ, to this blessed and only potentate, to this one who dwells in the light, unapproachable, to him be honor and power everlasting. Amen. This is one of those statements in Scripture, you know, that we ought to utilize to help us establish what uh, is a popular term today, our worldview. You stop and think about it, the term worldview is just another term for religion. But uh, I guess maybe the term religion is held in such contempt that the term worldview will serve its purpose Worldview. How do you view the world? That's what worldview is. And in connection with establishing our worldview, one of the things you have to ask, a very basic question, why do we exist? For what purpose did God create us? And why did he redeem us to himself? He did so that we might live to his honor and glory Salvation, you see. And this is something we do well to contemplate. I don't know if we think on this near enough. Salvation is not only from sin, but salvation is also from self. Of course, the two are connected, I suppose. Sin and self, living for self, that is sin. So, a connection there, but a distinction Sinful man lives for himself, and because he lives for himself, he can never truly be satisfied with life. He soon discovers that the things of this world can't satisfy the deepest longings of his heart, no matter how many of the world's toys he's able to afford. You see, man was created for something far greater than the toys and the games and the entertainment of this world. He was made to bring glory to God. He was made to enjoy God. And the Christian was redeemed by the blood of Christ in order to bring praise and to declare in worship the honor and power of Christ. Now, it's not as if we have it in our power to bestow honor and power on God or Christ. We can no more bestow honor and power on Him than we can glorify Him. Think about that for a moment. How can you possibly glorify one who is already altogether glorious? You can't add anything to Him, And you certainly can't add anything to him in terms of power. What are we in comparison to him when it comes to the matter of power? But we can bestow honor and power on him in the same way that we glorify him, which is declaratively. We can declare his honor and his glory and his power We can and we should declare his honor and glory and his power. And this is something we do, you see, in worship. That's why we're here this morning. To declare his honor and his glory and his power. Not that we add to it, but we declare it. And we profess our faith in it. And in doing so, we really imitate the hosts of heaven. In their worship. So in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, we read of the worship of those that surround his throne. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And then in the next chapter, beginning with verse 12, And you shouldn't miss, you know, when you're reading the book of Revelation, you shouldn't miss the drama and suspense of these. Don't be so caught up in trying to figure out uh, prophetic nuances that you lose the glory and the suspense of this event in Revelation 12. Who can take the scroll? Who can take the scroll and undo the seals? The scroll, I think you could take to be the unfolding of God's plan in redemption. Who can take it and unseal it and roll it out? Nobody can. And you read the account there of how John is moved to weep and to weep profusely because no man is found in heaven and earth that is worthy to take the scroll until the Lamb of God steps forward. And he takes that scroll. And he has won the right to advance redemption. And then we read in that context, then, beginning in verse 12, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You see how they're declaring these things? That's why I say this is how we should worship. We can follow their pattern. We can declare these things about our God. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Oh, what a pattern for worship. And doesn't that show us how we bestow honor and glory upon Christ? Not that we can add it to him, but we celebrate it. We acknowledge him to be all-powerful and all-glorious. Oh, dear Christian, let this heavenly example, as well as Paul's words to Timothy, govern how you live. You don't live for yourself. You live for Christ. Let the answer to our very first catechism question establish your worldview and your sense of purpose and let it motivate you to keep the charge to be holy. What is man's chief end? Our shorter catechism asks question number one, and I love the fact that this is the first question. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So you have a number of heart-stirring motives to move you to keep the charge. Christ is coming again. Christ is immortal and holy. And Christ is worthy of all honor and power forever. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. O oh Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this worship service to a close, we thank thee that our Savior is all-glorious, that he is all-powerful, that he is infinite and eternal. We thank thee that he is the blessed and only potentate. We thank thee, Lord, that he rules over this universe as one who is happy and is satisfied. And we thank Thee that we are blessed in Him. O Lord, I pray Thou wilt help us not to skip over such statements as what we find in this section of 1 Timothy 6. But may our hearts be moved by it. And may we indeed draw our motivation for living From the character of God, his holiness, his immortality, and his worthiness to receive all praise and honor and glory. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.